Capita and This is Planet Ed have launched the Early Years Climate Action Task Force, which will explore how the country can support young children ages 0 to 8 to flourish, despite facing the impacts of climate change. Here is the fifth public listening session, held on February 10th, 2023. Welcome, everyone. Thanks very much for joining the fifth public listening session on the Early Years Climate Action Task Force. Charged with drafting an Early Years Climate Action Task Force for the U.S., you can find out more at either capita.org or thisisplanetair.org. This is the fifth in a series of listening sessions highlighting the particular vulnerabilities of young children to climate change and opportunities for early child, early year sector and cross-sectors partners to take action. It will hear from parents and guardians, children's caregivers, pediatric uh, health care providers, subject matter experts, and grassroots advocates. We have everyone. The task force will also highlight the experiences of Indigenous and Native communities, people of color, and those of low income and those living in particularly climate vulnerable communities. We also wish to gratefully acknowledge that the task force work is supported in part by the W Clinic, Plymouth and Jesse V Stone Foundation. Diana. Thanks Antoine. Today we have a timely panel to help us understand how can local state and tribal plans to address climate change include very young children. We'll hear from each panelist first and then the task force members will be able to ask, ask questions. We are joined by Adam Freed, a principal at Bloomberg Associates and former acting and deputy director of the New York City Mayor's Office of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability. Joel Moffat, a former vice chair of the Nez Perce Tribal Executive Committee, now serving as the director of environmental projects for Native Americans in philanthropy. Antoine? We're also served by Marta Seguro, is the chief heat officer, love that title, for the city of Los Angeles, and Heather McTeer Tony is a former mayor of Greenville, Mississippi, and vice president, community engagement and environmental defense fund. Diana, thanks for joining us here today, and we will begin with Joel. Good morning, everyone. My name is Joel Moffitt. I'm a citizen of the Nez Perce tribe, and uh, I'm zooming in from uh, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I'm originally from Idaho, but I'm zooming in from outside Seattle on Suquamish tribal land. Um, so uh, welcome, everyone, and thank you for the invitation to talk about um, this important subject. Um, so when we talk about uh, climate change impacts just in general, um, tribes are extremely vulnerable. Uh, tribal populations, whether they live back on their home reservations, um, rural or urban, um, a lot of our folks live in, in urban communities as well. Um, and when looking at the, the way that we um, interact uh, with our lands, um, our waters, our resources, um, we are the, the first, we are on the front lines uh, when we're talking about climate change impacts. Uh, we, we are affected by the uh, sea level rise. A lot of our communities on the coast and up in Alaska are having to pick up and move. Um, we look at the impacts to some of our keystone species like salmon, um, that are just being devastated by the warming waters, uh, look, affecting our way of life, affecting who we are, our, our identity, um, and our connection to to our creator. Um, and when we look at the impacts to our health, they, they have also been a high priority when tribes are um, looking at how to assess and adapt to these coming changes. Um, unfortunately, a lot of our tribes don't have established um, adaptation plans, even even uh, vulnerability assessments um, to, to, to just get the, the baseline data uh, on how it's going to impact us. Um, but when we talk about uh, us, the tribes being on the front line and being uh, extremely vulnerable to these changes, um, well, that that is the only, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's only heightened for our young ones, our children, our youth. And so when when I've examined um, so I, I used to work for um, the uh, the four Columbia River tribes um, out here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I served on the Fish Commission and was chairman for a while. Um, and I'll, and I'll, we we conducted a climate change impact study uh, for the four tribes uh, on the Columbia River, and we looked at um, how how it's going to impact all ages. But um, there really wasn't a focus on early 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 childhood. Um, 
which uh, and I and I found that common across the the other uh, adaptation plans and feasibility studies that uh, vulnerability studies, excuse me, that I that I've uh, looked at across Indian country, and um, so this this is very timely, and I appreciate the the um, Aspen Institute and the highlight on the impacts because whatever impacts the adults is going to be exacerbated in our in our children. Um, when we're talking about the extreme wildfires and um, impacts to to air pollutants and then the asthma impacts uh, potentially for our our children and and adults um you know we we have um our our our, our kids uh and you know, I'm just going back to uh, my time on on the river fishing um and you know since we're I'm speaking from from myself in the Pacific Northwest. We're salmon people, so we're always fishing all year round, and so we're in close contact with those waters. and um, And I bring my kids out. You know, I have a ten year old and a twelve year old, and I see kids all the time out there. Um, uh, you know, with with their families, with their fishermen and women, and they're they're being exposed to that water. They're you know they're 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 helping, but they're also swimming and playing. And so I can only imagine, you know, when I'm looking at these algae blooms um, that that have become more frequent. Um, on the coast and in the rivers, when we're talking about the warming of the water, ter- turning the mercury that's already in it into methyl mercury, um, it's extreme exposure potential for um, for children and the impacts uh, to potential diseases, and 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 so not only just the immediate impacts um, to children um, are very uh, are a big concern for tribes, but then we're talking about long-term impact. So if they're to be impacted when they're extremely young um, with, with some of these ailments or diseases, it's only going to be, become worse um, as they grow older and it's harder to get them to heal and to, to recover from that. So the, these, are, these are priorities that are at the top of tribes' um, lists. But as I said, they have not been addressed fully in our, in our climate um, adaptation or vulnerability assessments. Those plans and so that goes back to a capacity issue um, at tribes. You know, we we are already um, looking at um, uh, you know the the agreements we have with the federal government that go back you know over two hundred years, um, where we gave up a significant amount of our of our land and significant amount of our people um, and our and our, our our way of life. Um, we prepaid for to to ensure that uh, we'd be able to uh, stay on our lands and um, continue to practice our ceremonies and harvest harvest and our our, our first foods our medicines um, but we we when when we when we ask for the support um, from the federal government um, it's never it's never to the, the the level that's sufficient for our um, our tribal nations to fully be be uh, be, be sovereign. And so when, when we're talking about the space of adapting to, to um, climate change and, and other urgent threats, we are, we are su- uh, insufficient in our capacity to, to address those as well. So it goes back to um, we, the, the, the tribes are doing the best we can to, um, to protect ourselves, um, our children, and our, our waters and lands. But the, the, the amount of resources that are flowing to our communities are significantly less than what's needed to, to address that. Thank you, Joel, very much for, for your comments. Um, next, we're going to hear from Adam, um, Adam Freed. Great. Thank you very much, and, and good afternoon for my time zone, and, and thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. Over the course of your past hearings, you've already established the clear, present, and growing danger that climate change poses for very young children. As a father whose son was in and out of the hospital at a young age with respiratory issues, I know the paralyzing fear of having an infant in an emergency room struggling to breathe and understand the impacts this has not only on the children, but also on their families. This is an experience far too many parents face and more will if we don't proactively address the impacts of climate change. We live in an era of extreme events and the sad fact is the impacts that we're grappling with aren't happening by chance, but by design. The form and design of our built environment and our decision to continue to rely on fossil fuels and the choices that we've made are accelerating and exacerbating the impacts of climate change on very young children. The good news is with that, though, is that it's in our power to change that. And many cities across the globe are doing that. And I want to spend a little time focusing on how cities are responding to that. Particularly, I want to focus on on three actions that help protect very young children from climate change. One, improving indoor and outdoor air quality. Two, planting trees. And three, creating cool spaces and communities to combat extreme heat. 
Poor air quality is a critical risk to very young children, particularly those under five. It can result in emergency room visits, missed school days, and therefore work days for parents and lifelong ailments. The science between air quality and children's health is very well established. This month marks the 20th anniversary of the death of Ella Kissy Deborah in London, a nine-year-old who was the first person in the world to have air pollution listed on their death certificate as the cause of death. Cities like London, Brussels, and New York have launched extensive street-level air quality monitoring programs to track local air quality, not on rooftops, but in the places where children are exposed to it. Having this data allows cities to understand where pollution is at its worst, what the local sources are likely causing it, and therefore develop targeted solutions to eliminate it. In New York, the monitoring network launched by Mayor Michael Bloomberg showed that heavy heating oil used in just 10,000 buildings 1% of our building stock generated more PM2.5 than all cars and trucks combined in the city. This led his administration to ban heavy heating oil in buildings, which helped the city achieve the cleanest air quality in more than 50 years, and was the second biggest public health initiative in the city after banning indoor smoking. In just three years, New York City's clean heat program prevented 800 deaths and 2,000 emergency room visits and hospitalizations a year. Building on this experience, cities like Milan are installing low-cost air quality monitors at schools across the city to track pollution children are exposed to, and also integrating air quality and climate curriculum into their classrooms so they can take actions and understand what can be done to prevent it. London, which is one of the most extensive street-level air quality monitoring networks in the world, is using this data to take bold actions. Mayor Sadiq Khan is expanding the city's ultra-low emission zone, which levies fines on polluting vehicles, and has already dramatically reduced air pollution levels in the center of the city to the entire city, bringing clean air to 5 million more people. Now, while most of the focus has been on outdoor air quality, the fact of the matter is, sadly, we spend 90% of our time indoors. A recent study by the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health found that gas stoves are responsible for almost 13% of U.S. childhood asthma cases. That proportion is even higher in states such as Illinois, California, and New York, where gas stoves are more prevalent and can be linked to one in five childhood asthma cases. Thankfully, this is an area where reducing carbon emissions directly leads to better health outcomes for young children who spend even more of their time at home. Cities like San Francisco, Berkeley, New York are banning natural gas and all fossil fuels in new buildings. This will help these cities achieve their ambitious climate goals and protect very young children from harmful pollution. Now, cities are also working to increase their greenery, which improves air quality, cools neighborhoods, has a number of mental and public health benefits as well for young children. But as more cities turn to tree planting to deal with the impacts of extreme heat and rainfall events, they're realizing it's not just about how many trees that you plant, but where you plant them. In 2018, Nashville launched the Root Nashville Campaign, a public-private partnership to plant 500,000 trees across the city. This effort took a data-driven approach to prioritize trees in neighborhoods where they could have the biggest benefits. This includes areas of low tree canopy coverage, high rates of respiratory disease, high daytime average temperatures, lower incomes, and high densities of children under five. Mayor Lori Lightfoot in Chicago has taken a similar approach. For our Root Chicago program, spending $46 million to plant 75,000 trees across the city in five years. The initiative is using data to prioritize planting in historically marginalized and underserved communities, using indicators including high concentrations of children to target new plantings. Our roots, which planted 20,000 trees in the first year, a third of which were in equity-oriented communities, is delivering tangible benefits to children today while also addressing systemic inequities that have been built over generations. And as the need for greening cities has increased, cities are expanding their efforts beyond trees and public right-of-ways to other publicly managed spaces to help children. Trust for public land estimates there are more than 90,000 public schoolyards in the U.S., spanning almost 2 million acres. Most of these, sadly, are covered in dark asphalt, which retains heat on hot days. By converting these barren schoolyards into verdant, green, shaded spaces, schools can create cool havens for children and their caregivers. When I worked in New York City, we transformed more than 240 playgrounds, which were closed to the public after school ended and on weekends, into community playgrounds, reducing climate risks and bringing hundreds of thousands of residents within a 10-minute walk of a park. Paris built on this program with an even greater focus on heat waves. They used data to target their schoolyard conversions to the hottest parts of the city with high concentrations of young children, among other factors. 
Through the Urban Oasis program, the city has converted more than 100 schools into community cooling infrastructure. And in London, Mayor Khan has partnered with the Department of Education and Thames Water, their private water company, to make 100 schools more resilient to the impacts of climate change and to teach children about climate adaptation. Schools were selected in areas of the city most exposed to heat and flood risks and with high concentrations of vulnerable populations, which they defined as children under five. Creating more resilient schools is absolutely critical for children as flooding can have a major impact on schools. In the summer of 2007, flooding in England resulted in widespread school closures that amounted to more than 400,000 lost pupil school days. Now, as your work has highlighted, children are disproportionately impacted by climate change. Thankfully, many of the actions cities need to take to reduce their carbon emissions and adapt to climate change have disproportionate benefits for them as well. They can also help address systemic inequities built into our urban form as a result of redlining and other racist policies, which shape the trajectory of children's lives. I'll end by stressing that in addition to those concrete actions, making changes that I've highlighted today takes three things. One, the political will to take action. Two, the data to target those interventions to where they can have the most benefit. And three, mechanisms like design standards, zoning codes, recurring funding streams, and partnerships to implement them at scale. Very much appreciate the opportunity to be here today and look forward to the discussion to follow. Thank you so much, Adam. Um, and next, we'll hear from Marta Segura. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm the City of LA's first Chief Heat Officer, but also the Director of the Climate Emergency Mobilization Office, where we address um, extreme heat, climate change, uh, and health through an equity lens. And speaking of those, the, the connections between extreme heat, climate change, equity, and children and health are so many. It is worse for children who are in the most vulnerable pollution burden areas and suffer the most from pre-existing health conditions and live, work, play, and go to school in pollution burdened areas. Many of those live in units that are ill-equipped for hotter heat waves and inclement weather. So the city of LA wants to boldly act and invest in climate solutions for those most pollution burden areas first and foremost, because they have been historically disinvested for far too long. So these investments are not only going to do the right thing and save lives, but it's also about the self-preservation of the entire region and the entire planet. I think we have come up with too many technology-driven solutions that fit a certain niche and address a certain need for carbon emissions, but we need to go beyond carbon emissions because indeed schoolyards all over Los Angeles are next to oil wells and oil drills, refineries like they are in Wilmington, um, metal uh, plant facilities where they process metals and have been processing metals for far too long. And extreme heat, as you may know, exacerbates air pollution. It exacerbates the ozone uh, pollutants in, in an urban setting in particular. And the children who are outside playing or at school or in recess or it could be, it's typically the summertime, um, are overexposed because they um, already in these pollution burden communities have asthma and other health disparities. So it is, it is an area that I also feel limits their potential. It limits their mental health development. It limits their physical development and therefore limits their potential to be thriving, healthy adults and seeking higher education and living to their fullest potential. And I think that that is the biggest crime, that we are not seeing the long-term effects of exacerbated um, climate change and exacerbated uh, pollution on the lives of young children because their mortality rates are higher, so then we don't track their health effects as adults. Um, in Los Angeles, we are considered by FEMA as one of the regions in in the country with the highest risk for extreme heat. We have six times the number of heat waves now in Los Angeles than we did before. So now we call it a heat season. And we have a new map at UCLA by um, at Los Angeles created by UCLA. It's the heat risk map. And it demonstrates what we already know that the mortality rates are excessive, the um, emergency room visits are excessive, um, the calls to 911 are excessive, 
in the areas that have been historically disinvested and are near uh, pollution uh, that has created these health disparities. So, for example, in the area, uh, the neighborhood of Wilmington, um, it's like the second largest refinery uh, region in the United States, and hardly anybody knows about it. But if you go there, your lips begin to burn, your nostrils begin to burn, and you wonder how people live there every day and how children can thrive there every day. And then when they're flaring um, and there's extreme heat, uh, they're told to stay indoors. But indoors and indoor air pollution isn't particularly better. As my colleague Adam Fried pointed out, they have gas stoves. And when they're cooking and the flaring and the existing air pollution and with exacerbated um, scenario with extreme heat, then that's why we have these excessive calls to 911 and hospitalization. So the city of LA is trying to factor that into our emergency response protocol so that we can deploy more resources where we're having the greatest hospitalizations and deaths. So that's one of our approach. But of course, we want to create not just a more climate adapted city, but climate adapted homes. So the city of LA last year passed a new building decarbonization policy where we're going to electrify, uh, eliminate gas lines for all new buildings. And this year, the city council is contemplating an existing building decarbonization ordinance where we could phase in healthier homes, greener homes for the most pollution burdened areas of Los Angeles and for low-income communities. But we want to do that without causing displacement, without causing unintended consequences, without causing excess um, utility rates. So we're trying to seek a financial model, a sustainable financial model that can help us phase in uh, the decarbonization of buildings so we can avoid the consequences other cities have felt when they've attempted to do the same thing. And CIMO is in the middle of that, the Climate Emergency Mobilization Office and our Climate Equity LA um, Stakeholder Engagement Series is in the middle of that because we integrate youth into our commission. We integrate youth into our workshops. We we receive their testimonies. We're conducting focus groups with very diverse communities throughout Los Angeles. Um, the native communities in Los Angeles, black, indigenous, brown, uh, Asian, and we are attempting to include the experiences in the household. So with families and with youth so that they can provide testimony to our city council to influence the building decarbonization policy to ensure that those people's needs are met first and foremost, because I think it's not just my theory. I think it's a well-established um, knowledge that if you if we begin to invest in the most pollution burdened areas first and foremost, we will begin to solve the climate solution for everyone. And in this case, particularly children who are our future, who are at the forefront and the front lines of demanding climate change because they deserve to be here 10, 20, 30, 40, uh, 70, 80 years from now, uh, taking our place at these testimonies, taking our place in, in leadership and, and thriving in whatever it is that they want to thrive in. Um, I could go into all of the other areas that Los Angeles is is um, seeking change in and transformation in for climate adaptation and climate change. But I think the most significant thing that I can share with you at this moment is that this office, the Climate Emergency Mobilization Office, was actually something that the environmental justice organizations advocated for. So our governance model is to meaningfully engage youth, children, Black, brown, indigenous communities, Asian communities that are overrepresented in these pollution burdened areas so that their testimonies and their advice through focus group surveys, polls, um, workshops um, and research are reflected in the reports that we provide to the Climate Emergency Mobilization Commission, which is also representative of the frontline communities. And then they advise the city council on creating equitable climate policy. And, there, and therefore, their voices are heard and integrated into the changes in, um, and the investments that we hope are coming from the 
IRA and from the federal government, especially in alignment with Justice 40 initiative. And California and Los Angeles wants to be a model to demonstrate that we can um, invest 40% or more of those federal funds into these most historically disinvested communities to help our kids thrive and to help our communities thrive and to ensure that they're here to be the leaders of the future. Thank you all. Thank you, Marta. And finally, we'll hear from Heather McTeer Tony. Thanks so much. And uh, hello to everyone. I am coming to you from Mississippi, the land of the Choctaw and Chickasaw people. And it's a pleasure to be here uh, to have this conversation. And uh, I think one thing that we can present as being foundational in what we've heard from both Adam and Marta is that when it comes to children and it comes to the health of those children, uh, the impacts of pollution to those children, communities are the subject matter experts. So parents, guardians, families, as they are described by that community, uh, not necessarily a nuclear family, maybe as there's a general stereotype, but people who are also caring for children who are in foster homes, children who are uh, without the parents that they were born with. All of these children are guarded by those communities, and those community members are the ones that we should start with, because the community members know what those children need. And in communities of color in particular, the issues cannot be siloed. So we can't talk about the impacts of climate change without addressing coinciding justice concerns like housing, like healthcare, education, and violence. Environmental justice is a foundational component that can and does exasperate these issues, particularly in communities of color and particularly with children. So what I want to focus on is what are the opportunities that state and local governments have today to both engage communities, take from that subject matter expert that they have, and then utilize it as, as co-creating solutions um, with the once-in-a-generation opportunity we have with the Inflation Reduction Act, the Justice 40 Executive Order, and then IIJA, which is infrastructure. Because we want to make sure that the funding that we have makes the most impact in the places that need it the most. And in order to do that, we have to listen, again, to communities and the communities that are guarding these children in order to put those needs first. So three ways that we can really focus on this in three particular areas, uh, soot pollution, lead pipes, and then looking at extreme weather, uh, because these are significant problems that uh, if we're able to regulate pollution, if we're able to look at these investments and how they're impacting in communities, we can not only make good use of these investments, but also leverage them to meet the demand for additional climate investments like electric school buses and lead pipe replacement and more resilient infrastructure so that the children that we are discussing today that are at the highest impact will also have the highest benefit. So I want to start very quickly with soot. Soot is the most common air pollutant in the U.S. It's a dangerous form of airborne pollution, and it can originate from power plants, from vehicle tailpipes, um, from industrial facilities all over the country. But it is especially dangerous for children. And here's a kicker. Black and brown children are six times more likely to go to the emergency room for a polluted pollution-related asthma. So not only is this a issue and a pollutant that's dangerous to kids, if you are children of color, you're more likely to suffer extreme illness and even death from that polluted-related asthma. Extreme weather is another significant impactor. Uh, over the holiday season in Mississippi, I'm sure many of you all heard about what happened in Jackson. Uh, and if it was your first time hearing about it, there should be some concern because what's been happening in Jackson, Mississippi, with respect to water has been happening for years. Back in August of 2022, when heavy rainfall completely overwhelmed Jackson's already crumbling water infrastructure, most of the city lost all of its running water for days. And people were not only waiting in line for water to meet their everyday needs, but how we were delivering water to people was continuing to exasperate the problem. 
We know plastics are not good for our environment. They're not good for landfills. So imagine what happens when there are truckloads of plastics that are also being put into a community to help in a critical need. There's not a lot of choices that we have. According to EPA, approximately 300 boil water notices have been issued over the past two years alone within the city. And over the holidays, once again, because of freezing temperatures that are going to increase across this country, the city waters lines broke. And it led to another boil water notice that not only occurred right on Christmas Day, but continued for the next two weeks. Children were not able to go back to school because they had no water system that would support them. So that's another way that we're seeing how climate change impacts cross-collaborative issues like education. The last one is lead pipes. So in the past 25 years, the evidence that lead pipes, even at low levels, pose a significant risk to children's brain developments, it's only become more compelling for us. We know that lead can harm brain development in young children, resulting in learning and behavioral problems, and it can reduce their IQ for the rest of their lives. But as you probably know, you find more lead pipes and the need for lead pipe replacement, again, in marginalized communities and communities of color. All of those things that I just listed, there are current solutions to. IRA, Justice 40, and IJA all have opportunities for billions of dollars that can be invested in communities through electric school bus funding in all 50 states, looking at how we can tighten our standards on soot, setting safer standards as a core environmental justice issue that will impact children, and then investing into the infrastructure of communities such that there is a resilience that's created and children are existing and living and thriving in the communities that are teaching them, that are calling, that they call home, and that they are understanding are becoming more and more sustainable because of these investments. I think when we begin to take a look at the pathways that not only impact children's development, but really begin to connect them together, we have a better shot at having a tremendous impact on the lives of children, not just from a climate perspective, but the whole child. And that's what parents have to think about. That's what I think about with my children. It's what I know my parents thought about with me. And in, even for children that don't have that, again, nuclear family that some people describe and are raised by a community and a village, we have to think about their whole existence and what we can do today to improve that and utilizing the resources that we have. I look forward to the questions and conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Heather. Thanks to all the panelists. We're now going to transition to questions. And um, so I'd encourage our um, uh, both um, our, our task force members to put questions in the chat or to raise their hands. And um, I think questions also can come online um, through the live stream. But I'll start with a question. Um, I think it's really, um, honestly, it's it's for all of you, but maybe, um, Adam, we can we can start with you. What information and perspectives when we think about very young children who aren't yet in public school probably um uh and pregnant people and and families with very young children what information and perspectives um are still missing from the conversation about local and state climate action plans and where could we get that information and just a point of clarity, when you say what information is missing, like within the plans themselves or for the parents and the, the caregivers? Well, I'm thinking really about the, the policymakers and, yeah. um, and, and really mm-hmm. asking what, what information perspectives would, do they still need? Um, yeah. for particularly with respect to very young children, non-school age children and yeah, pregnant you know, children. I- I think the good news is a lot of the information they need and, and Heather does a terrific job of raising those issues and, and where they're found uh, are now being brought forth by the federal government through the Justice 40 initiative. And not only is it the right information that's showing where disparities exist, where you have you know, historically disadvantaged communities, environmental risks they may be facing, um, it's having the right information at the right time with the right incentive to use it. So linking federal funding to that 
that you need to direct funding to justice 40 communities is really, really important to drive action. Um, you know, I, I think the science is becoming clearer, but during connecting the dots to it's not just you have elevated levels of asthma in communities that have uh, polluting sources uh, outside or with the gas stoves, but what that translates into the economic loss to missed days uh, and connecting all the dots, not only for the whole child, but for the whole family and community, because mm -hmm. it, it really starts to spiral from there. When you think about when, when my child's home, and I remember this, as I mentioned, he was in and out of the hospital at a young age, he missed school. Uh, it delayed his reading and, and then some issues that and speech and other issues related to that. My wife and I were out of work uh, on those days. It has a cascading impact. And I think making sure you can connect those dots is absolutely critically important. And taking the science into storytelling uh, is really interesting and, and a necessary piece that has to come with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Diana, if I may, this is Marta Segura. I think the other area that... Um, is the data that is missing is the health and human services data to cross over into the climate action plan. And I know the health and human services department and I have been having conversations about how to improve our clinics, doctors and hospitals, their training and knowledge and information to ensure that they are properly diagnosing the cause of incident whether it's an emergency visit, urgent care visit, or a regular doctor's visit, um, to ensure that the combination of uh, pollution, health disparities, and extreme heat or adverse weather impacts are all part of their knowledge base so that they can better identify the risks and, and prepare them to, to prevent those hospitalizations and deaths from happening. Um, we don't have that training, and we also don't have the data that we need uh, fast enough at the city of Los Angeles to act upon um, how we can then craft out investments and responses to prevent those deaths and hospitalizations. So I think um, the focus on health and health equity in the Climate Action Plan has been a missing link, but as Adam just mentioned, it's be it's beginning to be integrated but working at the city, I can tell you, operationalizing that, shifting the culture with all general managers, all departments um, throughout the city to align with those uh, health and equity metrics is a challenge because it's a re-education of our system. It's an unlearning and relearning. Uh, so that's the challenge, I think. There's a, there's a cultural component that is also very helpful because understanding how communities talk to one another is a key part of how we collect that data. And so uh, understanding, I think, um, how culturally pregnant people are experiencing and describing some of the elements of um, the issues and problems, it, it, it's very important to have diverse communities on both sides of this, both the collecting of the data as well as the community that is, is putting that data forth. Um, <clears throat> there are very different expressions of how we communicate with the environment based upon our own cultures. And so for some of those spaces, going to a hospital is not a natural part of the process. So that wouldn't be a natural entry point if that is not culturally the place that people feel safe. Um, and for example, in the Black community, for years, women were not safe. They did not feel safe. They did not have the health care, and it was not a part of uh, culturally how we would give birth. I, I would not speak, begin to, to speak for the tribes uh, and tribal people, but again, the cultural aspects of that early childhood development period is different in different cultures. So I think awareness of that can also help us aid in, in learning what data points we're missing and then what are solutions that could be broadened across a lot of different kinds of communities. Thanks, Joel. Do you have something to add? Uh, well, I, I mentioned, you know, the the lack of data just for tribal tribal nations and the leadership, the decision makers at in the individual tribes, um, and and just to for frame of reference, um, we're talking about over 574 federally recognized tribes. So um, I echo the fact, you know, the comment of Heather, like I don't speak, I speak for my tribe, <laughs> um, one tribe, one of the 574. And that's not counting um, state recognized tribes, urban Indian communities, native Hawaiians, 
we have a lot of indigenous people out there. <clears throat> and so um, we can't make blanket statements, but um, when we're talking and a lot of across all geographies too. Um, so we're talking about um, a, a, a very um, diverse uh, set of um, communities, um, but, but we share a lot of um, uh, uh, common values as well. And so when we're, when we're talking about like what data do we need to protect ourselves and our communities and our children? Um, you know, we, we, um, we, we know some of the health data. Um, we know, we, we know the disparities of our communities. We know we have, we, we, we already are impacted by high, high levels of diabetes and high levels of, of heart disease and asthma and all that. We know we're already in a vulnerable state, um, uh, of our health. And so, when we talk about um, the, the then identifying what these threats are from uh, um, climate change and extreme weather events, um, we need to we need to we need to have accurate studies to to how to show us how that's going to impact us when we get a, when we make decisions on um, well for an example so um, we you know a lot a lot of our our homes um, especially back on the reservations and rural areas we don't have air conditioning. Um, and so when, when we have these extreme heat, heat events, um, and we try, we can't, we can't, um, uh, go to refuges in our, in our homes. Um, so, and then obviously, and then you have the indoor air quality issues because a lot of our homes also have, um, wood burning stoves. Um, and so when we're talking about the air, the particulate matter and just air quality is, is terrible. I mean, we, we have, we've been involved in, in federal programs with EPA where we're, where we're transitioning out of wood burning stoves, um, uh, onto more, um, healthy, healthy ways to, to, to um, stay warm. But those, those are few and far between. Like I said, it's not sufficient. So not only do we not have the data, but like I said, just the, 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 the basic resources, um, to, to act upon, um, some of this data that, that we've collected. So one thing. One quick question, Joel, and then I'll open it up for you. I had when you were talking, you had mentioned some critical things around food insecurity when you were talking about that. Can you say a little bit more on that? Because I know as a country, we usually get concerned about other countries' food insecurities, but you mentioned something that I think really gets undersold. And so if you can mention a little bit more about that, I think that would be good. And then I'll open it up for questions. Angie, uh, you should be ready. I see a couple for you. Yeah, uh, yeah, thanks for that. Um you know, you so so um our, our communities, you know, we've we've gone through a lot in a in a really short amount of time relative to the history of the earth, right? Um, you know, when we're going from like what was our diet, <laughs> you know, just a uh, just a hundred years ago, um, and and what you know, and how our bodies, our, our DNA, can deal with these new, more processed foods. I mean, that that contributes to you know what I was talking about about um, uh, diabetes and heart disease. Um, so we're, we're used to, like I said, from, from my perspective here in the Northwest, salmon. We're salmon people. Um, over 60% of our diet was salmon. Um, and then we, you know, we supplement that obviously with deer, elk, and buffalo and all the plants and medicines. So we shift over. And so like climate change is impacting all those, the, 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 the ecosystems and the, the habitats for all those keystone species that sustained us for thousands of years. So now we have to shift to, Federal commodities, you know, um, or just processed foods in the, in the local, um, uh, re, uh, um, grocery stores, which a lot of us are on, like on food deserts. So there's very li- limited healthy food options for us. So this just the, the climate change and moving, moving our, 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 our medicines, our first foods that we call them, um, out of our territories. Well, they, you know, um, a deer and elk can move, but other species like salmon, they can't, they can't move. They're just going to they're going to reach that critical um, temperature in the waters where they're just going uh, the, the high high levels of mortality are going are going to occur, which means um, that that keystone species that keeps us healthy, um, we're, we're, we're going to be lacking that. And so it just exacerbates that the, the, the healthy food that we've all depended on, um, the indigenous communities have depended on and now having to shift over to more processed, unhealthy foods. And that's just exacerbates the, the, the health inequities. Thank you so much. Thanks for Angie. And then please continue to put your questions in the uh, chat. And uh, we have about 15 minutes, so we're going to start rapid fire. So Angie, you want to go? Appreciate sure. It. Yes. Hi, uh, Angie Garland with the Low Income Investment Fund, and we work on early care and education facilities across the country. And I really appreciated the panelists giving uh, specific examples in different cities and, and communities about how they are, um, you know, 
hiring chief heat officers and thinking about urban greening and air quality. So what kinds of organizations or efforts can, can where other cities and tribal nations can help learn from each other um, about how to invest more and put children at the center of some of this climate funding? I, I, can, I can start with um, uh, a few for you. One of my favorites is naturally going to be Moms Clean Air Force because I used to be uh, a senior director um, of the, the team there. And I think Moms has a tremendous way of not only reaching um, parents and people who care about children because there are people who care about children who aren't parents, but um, I think they're, they're an, an extraordinary organization that has a strong reach. Um, another organization is uh, the African-American Mayors Association. So AMA, for short, is doing extraordinary work in connecting mayors in a way that they're leveraging their ability to talk about these issues and to include them in other things that the mayors are dealing with. And right now is a particularly important time to do that because you have African-American leadership in some of the largest cities in the United States, coupled with rural communities that are environmental justice centers. And so that's another important place. And I think they're doing a lot of strong work. And then without question, the Environmental Defense Fund is doing quite a bit in looking at how we can be most effectively use IRA, IIJA, and just this 40 funding uh, and how we not only measure this work, but um, how we deliver that messaging uh, of impact to particularly vulnerable populations, including children and the elderly. And I can also speak to that. In Los Angeles and California, the Promotora Health Network is really key. And what Promotoras are is like health promoters, mostly moms, um, mostly uh, women of color, particularly Latinas who um, just are really familiar with their neighborhood, really familiar with the women um, that that are in these areas, these pollution burden areas, and have been for decades already conveying health information to them. So they're a great uh, mechanism by which to share this information, mobilize it, and also become advocates. The other one, um, we just, the city of LA just established the concept of peace and healing centers. Where, where we are funding existing social service and nonprofit organizations that provide social cohesion and wraparound services to these burdened communities to address environmental healing, um, to address mental health, to address other social service uh, issues that create a more integrated, um, equitable approach um, to solving the overall um, root causes of of health disparities in these communities. And so that's a vehicle by which the city of LA is going to be promoting information, but also receiving advocacy advice um, and testimonies. Uh, There's the environmental justice coalitions in Los Angeles that have been not just pivotal for LA, but California, and I think the nation and working with other environmental justice networks and organizations to push for for change. And all of these have women at the forefront. All of these have women who are mothers at the forefront. Uh, so that is really key for me because um, my environmental advocacy started when I was a kid, right? When we were being sprayed by melothion in San Jose, California. And my mother was my hero. My mother was my example of, of how to become an advocate. So it's really important to give them spaces where they feel comfortable expressing their leadership and their wisdom so that they can make those transformative changes that we need for the early years. Yeah, I would add um, on top of that as well, some of the organizations like C40 Cities, U.S. Climate Mayors, where you can get kind of advocates and and mayors and leaders who are already thinking about these issues. Um, I come from city government, so I also have a technocratic side to me. Places like the National Association of City Transportation Officials um, we often have the climate champions already on board about this. We need the engineers, the transportation officials, the buildings department, people who may not be waking up thinking about climate as their day job to understand that they need to be thinking about climate and health and children as part of their day job. Um, and then I, I would also, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because partnerships are so essential and critical. And, and Heather talked about how solutions and ideas and understanding what's happening on the ground needs to come from the community. And I'll note that our Clean Heat Initiative, 
was started by a woman at EDF who outside of her day job, you know, came to our office and showed us in files the different types of heating oils in the city and really made us aware of that issue that built into you know, one of our, our signature initiatives. Um, but also the, the scale of change that's needed in cities is far too big and vast for cities to do it alone. And we can't just look for government. It needs to be, you know, the city governments and tribal governments and state governments and county governments using federal uh, funding and community groups and private sector businesses and nonprofits to really have the change. And a lot of the examples I highlighted, uh, like the Root National and Harwood Chicago, they're built as public-private partnerships. A, they can move faster. B, having, you know, making change with communities, not two communities. And they can last beyond a single mayoral administration because you don't want to have something that can last for four, maybe eight years. There's a turnover in mayors uh, and it goes away. So getting that community support can really ensure that you have the long-term sustainability of it. So, you know, I think that that partnership angle is really critical to have the change that we need to occur. Thank you so much. I got a question from Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth, do you want to turn your camera on and ask this question for us? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks all. Um, <clears throat> Heather, when you were speaking, you named a few crisis situations, the Jackson water crisis, extreme weather events. And I'm just curious from your perspective, how can the state and local governments make crisis response as just and humane as possible for young kids? Yeah, no, thank you for that. There's a... um. So there's a saying that we have when it was in local government, Adam, I don't know if you've heard this one, but you don't want to exchange business cards in the parking lot of a fire. Um, basically, um, being proactive versus waiting until the actual um, tragedy or extreme event occurs. So right now is the moment that cities and uh, work has to be happening to talk about how we address that crisis when it's going to happen again, because we know that there's going to be another crisis that happens. Um, I think with respect to the water crisis, investing in innovation that uses alternative methods of delivering water to people. So there are tons of different ideas that are happening around the around the, the planet, quite frankly, with respect to um, how you have safe drinking water available to communities. Uh, and I think it's important for us to look at home in the U.S., to how we deploy some of those because they can be used right here. Um, there was a really good one that used, I think, a, a um, don't let me get this wrong. Uh, uh, I know Jaden Smith has a, a company uh, that does philanthropy work around water and they have, um, they were using these box systems of how you could draw water from the atmosphere and provide safe drinking water for communities in a very sustainable way. Uh, and I just use that as an is one example of innovation that currently exists that we need to really invest into communities and give cities the investment dollars to scale it so that when we are coming to the next uh, emergency, there is a go to that the city has put into practice, they have tested and they can focus it with the most vulnerable populations first, your schools, your hospitals your neonatal units, you know, the places where you know you're going to have children and pregnant people, as well as the elderly. Um, and if we start doing that right now, we, we can begin to be better prepared when the next crisis hits. I don't see another question. Uh, Adam, I do have one for you. You mentioned earlier, you had a lot of data. I really love that being a data geek. Uh, my question is, is that has have you presented data to a certain audience and it did not change their perspective? Because uh, your data was pretty profound. Uh, sadly, all the time. I, I think and that, <laughs> that's where it's both the, the data and the storytelling. And, and I really wanted to underline, um, you know, what's necessary here is political will and, and a willingness and, and a desire to address these issues. Um, then you get into resource constraints and, and capacity. Is there enough staff? Do you have the funding? Um, you can you can try to find those and develop those partnerships, um, but getting the, the political will is where it needs to start. Um, and you know, data data can convince people. Uh, other people may be motivated by other issues rather than the data, but uh, it, that alone will, will not win the day. And I'd also say, you know, data is not necessarily information as well. 
there's a lot of data out there. How do you pull it together? How do you craft the narrative on it? Um, how do you get the right information at the right time? Um, there, there's a preponderance of data that's out there. That is sometimes it's one stat. Uh, I often look at uh, in Beijing. Um, it was the air quality monitor on the U.S. Embassy and linked to a Twitter account that was tweeting out the PM 2.5 emissions every day, I think every hour. And that alone was able to spur a lot of action uh, in China on air quality out of kind of embarrassment of how bad the air quality was. Mm -hmm. So you didn't need to have the huge amount of studies and other things to go with it. Um, so where can you find that right captivating data? Okay. Hey, Diana, I'll turn it over to you. I know you got a question. Yeah, I do. Thanks, Antoine. I was going to ask, um, and and this is really a question for I, I think again for for everyone, but perhaps particularly Heather and Joel. Um, when you think about developing um, uh, uh, local, tribals, um, even state uh, climate action plans, what does the continued in- engagement of the stakeholders look like, um, particularly those who are serving children, young, very young children and families who have very young children and families? Yeah, so the the um individual tribe uh you know the 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 size of the tribes can range from a couple hundred to a couple hundred thousand. Um and so it's going to vary across tribes. Um but the what the the adaptation and mitigation and action plans that I've seen have had you know robust engagement, outreach, going to those community to the individual um uh, uh villages and and towns in those in those communities. And, um, and having testimonials and really engaging in one-on-one, um, interviews as well. Um, and then, but then also, um, not just getting the direct, um, uh, um, uh, data and experiences from, from tribal members, but then look, looking at the, um, the, uh, the, the, the health, uh, clinic facilities that, that are on each tribal uh, reservation, looking at, uh, you know, and a lot of tribes also have, um, Climate, climate impact programs as well contained in their environmental, um, uh, resources departments. And so utilizing those, those, um, key professional staff, um, ongoing to, to help inform the data is key. Um, but as I mentioned before, not all tribes have those resources. A lot of them don't. And so, you know, this, this, um, engagement with, with the community is, is key. Um, and, 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 uh, I'll just talk about the other question and where, where, uh, resources, um, can help tribal nations accomplish that. Um, a lot of intertribal orgs, um, like the National Congress of American Indians, uh, or regional tribal organizations, um, like in the Northwest, uh, AT&I or the tribes in the, in the, uh, on the East Coast, um, you, uh, set, um, they they have um, robust programs that that are helping tribes get technical assistance and help them um, understand just kind of get wrap their heads around not only the the problem and the threats but then all these opportunities and resources coming down that we've been talking about from IRA or the infrastructure bill and how tribes can utilize those to to really protect protect their people protect their lands and waters from these these uh, um, threats from climate change. I'll try to be really fast. Um, uh, schools, naturally, because um, centering and going to places where you have the biggest impact and most people who are touching children is a is a huge component. Uh, and so uh, not only do cities uh, oftentimes participate with schools via giving them tax dollars or there being some exchange there, but also sometimes appointing school board members, working with PTAs and all components of the school um, system. It's also usually a part of the emergency response in that some cities use school buses to move people from one place to another if you have to have escape routes. These are all components of the city and city resources that you try to tool together. The second one is um, law enforcement. Uh, And law enforcement is, I raised that, I'm putting my mayor hat on now, because that's a space where often we see um, connections with children that are on the the more unfortunate side, but they do have their own databases. There are ways that you can connect with the youth court system and have a good understanding of in an emergency response, where do you need to go to look for children? How are children going to come in through the fire station, the police station? What are the um, patterns of how young people have interacted with law enforcement and what does law enforcement have to do to ensure the safety and protection of those children. The last is centers of faith. So your churches, your synagogues, your uh, tabernacles, places where you have an active community that are always um, 
engaging with young people uh, and are doing so on a regular weekly, bi-weekly basis mm-hmm. are really good spaces to keep uh, and have strong stakeholder engagement because they see a different component of, of young people and children as well as the parents. And they have their own networks and the ability to bring those people together. So oftentimes going to those spaces is very important so that you can share information um, of what needs to happen in an emergency. And just give you an example, in just about every major emergency we've seen with respect to um, environment and climate response and things like violence, police brutality, shootings. There's a center of faith uh, where people run to. There's a a pastor who's on site. There's that element. So we should also um, deeply incorporate that in the planning process. Thank you. Um, Miriam, I think we have time for your questions. So um, just about to say it, Miriam, go. Okay. Thank you so much. I Uh, I actually want to, I actually wanted to build on a question. Can you all hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, that Angie had put in the um, in the chat, which is about the 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 early care and education facilities and homes where young children are cared for uh, and receive early childhood education services. Uh, Joel, being in the uh, Pacific Northwest as well, I've had some experiences with fires where, in the emergency response and aftermath, like these facility these homes and facilities were not, didn't seem to be on the map and the radar in the same way. Um, that, uh, you know, schools were, were thought of and, you know, and central. So I guess my question is like, are, are, maybe Martha or Adam in cities or others of, you know, do, are, do cities have this kind of data? I mean, are we seeing them not just as like the homes, but also the facilities where children are being cared for, whether that's around emergency response or that's really being able to think about some of these federal funds that are flowing through communities for things like lead pipes or looking at air quality. So hopefully my question made sense, but I, I just feel like I, I'm just wondering about in general, how, how on the map are they um, and recognized as places where children are receiving, you know, their early education um, services. Well, I was just, hopefully this will be brief. For the first time, FEMA has required climate change and climate to be one of the issues that's addressed by our local hazard mitigation plans. But the city of Los Angeles is going to be conducting a climate vulnerability assessment that will include all areas of social vulnerability and um, identify sensitive receptors such as these uh, and schools, et cetera. So I don't think it's a common practice. And it's going to be the first time the city of L.A. does that. The county of L.A. did something similar, but it's not granular enough for the city of Los Angeles to be effective and to include it in its emergency response plans and its adverse weather task forces, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that's that's probably a good general answer. And I'll let Adam take it next. Yeah, I was going to say sometimes they have partial data um, and particularly some of the uh, more informal child care centers and daycare centers uh, is not available. And I think those are often the ones that you want to reach. It depends on the permitting and, and regulatory system of the cities, how up to date it is, uh, what's happening in um, kind of the, the gray economy where it, they may not be licensed, but they're providing critical um, mm-hmm. services in their communities. I know Chicago, which uh, has the most lead service lines of any city in the U.S., um, you know, an astronomically high number, I think it's about 400,000 estimated lead service lines. As they're thinking about how do they prioritize and target replacements, looking at child care centers, looking at daycare centers, where they have them uh, on the record, trying to go in there first, knowing that that's where children are going to be exposed at an early age to it. Um, but I, I think it is a, a spotty system in terms of how available and thorough the data is, which is a real challenge. Yeah, I'll add one more thing to that, that the uh, emergency operations deployment strategies uh, in their protocol do not prioritize like these these issues. Um, what what happens in one of those meetings when you're preparing for a disaster and adverse weather event, at least in L.A. County and Los Angeles, is every department, LAF, the, the fire department, the police department, the public works department, they're all just asked by the emergency operations leader, are you ready? Are you prepared? So what we're trying to do now is flip that. Say, these are the vulnerable areas. These are the health disparities. This is where we have to have the you know, deployment of resources increased. And this is why, right? So we flip the analysis, make uh, health equity children first, right? And then 
we decide how to deploy those resources uh, versus asking each department in its own silo, do you feel you're ready for this disaster, right? Because we all need to be reoriented and re re um, taught how to deploy resources. I'll, I'll just add that, um, uh, you know, tribes and, and I've visited a lot. Um, and obviously I've worked um, with tribes in these national organizations and regional organizations I mentioned and almost every tribe has a head start program. I mean, they, they focus a lot on the early childhood learning and development. And, um, and so this is um, utilizing some federal funds, a lot of times utilizing their own tribal dollars. If, if they, if they have, um, um, economic development, um, resources. Um, but, um, I don't, I don't know if they are incorporating that data into, um, into the assessment and action plans, um, for how, how it's impacting, uh, how climate change is impacting them in those facilities. Like just an example. So, um, when I was on tribal council, um, let's see, it's a long time ago, um, about, about 15 years ago, um, we had a, we had an extreme weather event. We had a flood back back in Nez Perce and it um it caused um uh, black mold issues in our in our head start facility which was an old building ancient building um over 100 years old and so we we had to scramble and and um get them to a safe spot and so we we just put up some you know some mobile um units um for them they're still they're still um being um educated and ha- and housed in those mobile units which which are insufficient i don't know about the hvac you know units and and how how the air quality is um and so i think that's just one example it's a it's a, but i think it's a microcosm of what's going on across indian country and other reservations Thank you. Um, this was, a, this was great. And thank you for, um, Miriam for that question. Um, thank you, um, to Adam, Joel, Heather, and Marta for your time today. And, uh, I'll toss it back to Antoine. Again, thank you guys so much. Really appreciate the discussion. Uh, thanks for joining us today to the public. Uh, the next public listening session for the early years climate action task force will be Monday, March 20th at 12 o'clock. During that session, we will focus on how can we both engage parents in the fight for sustainable future and support parenting in the climate change era. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. Take care. The Early Years Climate Action Task Force will hold a series of listening sessions highlighting the particular vulnerabilities of young children to climate change and opportunities for the early years sector to take action. The next public listening session will be held on March 20th, 2023 and will be available to listen by podcast wherever you get your podcasts as well as capita.org and thisisplaneted.org.